Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kauli. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Uh, today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Lane Kawakoa with Simple Passive Cashflow. Uh, Lane has been a uh, previous guest, so thank you for coming on, Lane, again. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, so for guests uh, who don't know, uh, for listeners of our podcast, uh, Len has a deep construction background and he slowly switched his uh, focus into real estate investing that turned into uh, opening doors for, you know, what, uh, how do we go about the best practices of financial management, how uh, we kind of source the capital and what are the best ways we can uh, preserve these things and, uh, you know, many things around that financial education that go part of it. Uh, he has his own coaching program as well. He uh, regularly is a speaker in conferences uh, along with his many students. He is a big educator in the space as well. Uh, so, uh, Lane, without kind of stealing your third uh, give us a quick uh, snapshot on uh, sort of what your background has been and how you kind of came into real estate and also the financial space of things. Yeah, so I um, started investing in 2009 with a single family home rental. I grew that to 11 rentals in 2015, which when then I started to invest in more like an accredited investor sure. in multifamily, mobile home parks, um, office space. And um, yeah, l- lately I've been, I currently have 4,200 rentals on my operation side, but I really, really enjoy more the financial um, coaching side, the family office consulting side. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we're kind of jump into more today, right? I think everybody's drinking the Kool-Aid and yeah, multifamily, I think it's one of the most robust asset classes out there. It performed really well during COVID. Sure. sure. And um, so where do we get the money to invest, get some more of this, right? <laughs> sure, absolutely. And, and that's what we will talk about today, Lane. Uh, uh, you know, I'd love to kind of dig into some aspects of it. As you said, uh, you know, it's an open secret that uh, multifamily is a very resilient class. Uh, the more we network, the more we find the deals, uh, we kind of discover that, hey, uh, you know, there's Blackstones, there's Goldman Sachs, there's all these big hedge funds that uh, kind of come into the multifamily, not only to preserve capital, but also, you know, sort of gain the appreciation. Obviously, we know in uh, sort of the primary markets, for example, the cap rates are compressing despite COVID. We, we just keep on seeing these record prices into multifamily. Uh, but turning our attention to uh, just sort of how we finance these things, uh, sort of the sources of capital and things like that. Uh, could you maybe speak to that as to what has been your experience and wh- what have you seen so far as far as uh, sort of the flow of uh, money or capital into these deals? Yeah, so for my speaking for myself, I used to be an engineer and a lot of my clients, um, high paid professionals, you know, you, you, most guys don't have more than 50, 100 grand in your checking account. If you sure. do, you probably should change that because it's not making much in there, right? Right. 
Hmm. And maybe you go and do your first multifamily deal, you know, 50, 100 grand, and it's gone. Sure. And you're like, maybe you're seeing the cash flow and you're like, all right, I want to keep doing this. So the question is, where the heck do I go get my money right. after this? Um, so I've kind of made a list here of not necessary in this order, but I, this is the default order. So the first is your HELOCs, sure. right? You might have equity in your house. The HELOC is a great way of getting at that equity that is sort of, it's reversible in a way. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're paying, the second is, you know, getting a refinance on your current primary residence or your current rental properties to go and get the equity there. But, you know, lenders like this because you're going to incur that loan origination fee. Sure. Um, so I would go after the, the cheap, easy and free stuff first, which is the HELOC. Sure. And then once you exhausted that, then you look to refinance equity out of the properties or sell them. Sure, <laughs> like, sure, sure. If they're under one percent rent to value ratio, just sell those suckers. Is what I say. Sure, sure. And 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 those uh, uh, the selling aspect of it or the refinance, you're you're talking more about if you have some uh, like second homes or rentals and things of that nature. Would that be a correct statement? Right. I you know I think most unsophisticated investors they start off buying in places where they live, like California, where the rent to value ratios are dismal. Sure. Just not a good rental. Sure. And compound that with the mistake of paying down the property, paying down debt, a high equity position, which is not good for asset protection. Everybody knows where your equity is. They can look it up pretty easily and you're sitting duck when you have all your equity there. So sure. one little misnomer a lot of people don't realize is encumbering yourself with debt is a good asset protection strategy. Sure. So that, that, that's, that's a nugget in itself is that uh, I mean, for a lot of listeners who may not know, it's it's so easy to look up the sort of the tax records, uh, who owns the property, what they paid, and figure out okay, what uh, uh, you know what they may be owning and all that. And and to your second part uh, about hey, just keep the debt on the property so that nobody feels that hey, this guy has a, so much equity built in it. Uh, would that be uh, correct, Lane? Right, because that bank's got that first lien. Now, what, what happens in a lawsuit, you know, we, I can't say I'm not a lawyer, right? But sure. <laughs> to me, it makes very logical sense that at least encumbering yourself with the debt sure. helps. Absolutely. But, but, you know, you shouldn't have paid off properties, right? Or, you know, just take something as simple as a rental property. Sure. When I was buying turnkey rentals, I was making 30% returns on my money in the first sure. year. But as the property appreciates, the tenant pays down my mortgage, my equity position goes up. A sure. good thing, but unfortunately, my return on equity goes down as the years go by. So everybody should go look at their properties, how much equity is sitting in there, how much are they making, taking how much you're making divided by the equity, and that's your return on equity. Sure. Likely, if you've owned it for more than five years, you're under 10%. If right. you've got a paid off property, you're probably barely making one or 2%. You're probably better off in a savings bond with that much headaches and liability you're sure. taking on sure sure so this is something that investors should be looking at their portfolio and kind of constantly pruning it getting rid of the the hard at the, the the pain in the butt assets and seeing where their equity is to reharvest it and get it re-leveraged possibly in multifamily, right sure <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah so good so, so we move on to you know equities and stocks right that is a place where people store wealth Ideally, it's nice to go after the non-qualified retirement stuff first to sell that. Um, and then lastly, retirement funds is always kind of a big um, 
I think a lot of people that come into the space, we're good little boys and girls and taught to max out your 401k or pretty closely that you may have a big amount. But just know when you take out money before the re certain retirement age, I don't know, whatever it is, 60 or 70 years old, you're going to pay that 10% early withdrawal penalty, which don't freak out. I know a lot of people who are good boys and girls don't like to pay penalties, but right. do the math. 10% is nothing, right? I mean, you should be able to recruit that in about a year. Sure. Mm -hmm. And then, but also know when you take money out of your retirement account, it becomes income, right? So this is where I work with clients and we kind of make a strategy where, all right, what's your adjusted gross income? What's your AGI, right? right. Where is it normally humming at? Because when you take money out of that stuff, now it's gonna bump that up. Or if you sell equities or your stocks, it's gonna show up as income and we need to manage that. Right. So right. if people go to the 2021 tax brackets, they can look up where they fall on the AGI schedule. I would suggest staying under the, the general rule that I kind of follow and I advise clients is around that 32% range. If you can stay under there, you're doing pretty good. So that means for a couple married fall jointly that's staying below $330,000 is sort of the sweet spot. So a lot of my high net worth doctor clients that are making $600, I know it's all boohoo for them. We all feel mm -hmm. sorry for them. You know, we try and get that down. But if you're, you know, W-2 working guy, you and your spouse make 150 grand a year, maybe you take out $180,000 out of your retirement, leak it out slowly every year. So it takes you right up to that highest tax bracket. You go over, that's eh, cool. But, you know, that's that's kind of the game theory right here, right? Sure, 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 sure. Got it. So speaking of this then, how do we kind of preserve that? Like, what would you say that, let's say someone has taken the money out of the retirement account and is possibly incurring that 10% penalty, as you say, right? What do you advise in terms of the sources or uh, means where they should invest? Uh, what would be some of the sort of the, uh, you know, block and tackle strategies around that, uh, investing that money there? Yeah, so I'm not a lead attorney or anything like that, sure. but I do see best practices amongst investors. Mm -hmm. And depending on where you're, let's just first say if your net worth is under a million bucks, mm -hmm. let's be honest, one of the best asset protection strategies is being broke, which is, sure, you're not big target, right? right. So right. one of Absolutely. the biggest mistakes I see guys under that threshold is they're getting all these fancy entities and just stacking LLCs on top of each other at $100,000 a piece and the pain in the butt to manage. Um, now, kind of, I think most people that listen are higher net worth, and then it would make sense to definitely use a Wyoming LLC and maybe in combination with an, another LLC to sort of silo these assets. Hmm. Now, when you start to get into more advanced strategies such as irrevocable trust, equity stripping, or other methods that are a little bit more exotic, but depending on where your net worth is, and especially if you have a high paid or high liability profession, you may want to start implementing those types of things. But you know, it depends what you what you've got to lose, right? And how much I usually get a sense of like, you know, kind of kind of what's the energy of this client, right? They're kind of freaked out kind of person. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, we'll 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 entity up, right? But if they don't have if they have less than half a million dollars net worth. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, dude, just chill out, right? You know, right, right, right. Don't, don't get sold a horse carriage, 20-inch rims, 
everything, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Now, Lane, in terms of concrete, uh, let's say, investment assets, right? So would you advise them to maybe perhaps go into multifamily or self-storage uh, or any other asset class for that matter? What, what what would that look like as far as core investments go? I mean, I don't give, not, I can't give legal, uh, financial, legal or tax sure. advice, right? Yeah. But I'll tell you what I'm doing, man. I mean, I like multifamily. I like the realm of workforce housing. Sure. Right. Mm -hmm. To me, it makes sense. There's a growing population in America, especially on the lower end side. Sure. Right. With immigration, and we need. I mean, there's there's need for good value housing, right? Not on the low end, not being a slumlord, not being on the high end luxury stuff. Right. Um, I think rents between seven hundred bucks to twelve hundred bucks. That's mm -hmm. I think that's where you want to be in the right markets, emerging sure. markets too. Um, so I would say 80% of my portfolio is somewhat based off going after that avatar, that the working class blue collar person paying 700 bucks to 900, whether that be apartments, mobile home parks, um, most of it's apartments, right? but I think that's who I'm going after. I'm not a huge fan of self-storage. Um, sure. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, there, there's a, I think a liking uh, for each asset class. I'm sure there's a fan following for each one of them. I mean, you have investors, you have lead sponsors in each asset class that I have to, uh, and they have their own reasons as to why they kind of go after that. So that's that's for a point perfectly well taken, right? Uh, so Lane, this brings us into kind of, you have the whole financial aspect of these things. You've withdrawn the money and things like that. So from your angle from a management or from a portfolio management of uh, of all these things like what are some of your experiences or perhaps what what's the best advice you can give for anyone to kind of you know manage this whole thing at a high level like what would you say are some of the best practices around that well i mean i think if people have heard the term family office it's <laughs> for families that are 100 million dollar net worth and above <laughs> likely the person's listing doesn't have a hundred million dollars. Therefore you cannot afford a family sure. office consultant. Right. So to me, the best way is to surround yourself with accredited passive investors, to kind of mastermind on this stuff, right? Like sure. bonus depreciation wasn't here before 2017, 16, right? It wasn't a thing. Right. That was before that, the best thing you had was 1031 exchanges. And when bonus depreciation came out, 1031s were obsolete sure um, and things will change here right i mean it, it'll sure. change every two years right as right, right, presidents right. change out senate um changes out sure. so these tactics and strategies will always be churning sure so sure. i would say surround yourself with a mastermind where you can constantly be changing your strategy and hearing what are the best practices out there right, right? and it's a big surrounding yourself with the right people i mean it's and, and it's not like the free internet forums Right. Those are like right. some of the worst places to go. Sure. Sure. Right. Something I saw yesterday about like land conservation easements. I saw somebody who just went to Google for 10 seconds, found an article, said land conservations weren't good and cut and pasted it in. I'm like, <laughs> all right, well, you obviously don't do it. Find the group with high net worth people who do this stuff and sure. know the nuances and how to safeguard against it. Sure. Make, makes makes complete sense. So thank you, Lane. And, and speaking of a little bit about multifamily, uh, Lane, uh, you stated that 
you like the work for housing in the sort of the lower Sunbelt states and things like that. Uh, could you speak to some of your experiences as to why you chose that uh, sort of, let's say the Southeast uh, uh, side of the US to invest there and just sort of that BNC class uh, segment that you have for uh, picking the multifamily. Could you, could you speak to some of that as to what your thesis is into investing that? Yeah, so I mean, just geographically, right? Like if you follow population trends, you know, generally people are moving from the Northern side to the Southern sides. Um, they're getting the heck out of California, going to more um, pro-economy states, like sure. Arizona, Texas, Georgia, Alabama, Florida, the Carolinas, always kind of popping up. Um, yeah, to see, I mean, I don't know what, what leads the other, either job growth or population growth, one or the other, I don't really care, but I just look at both of those statistics. Sure. And then at that point, you're drilling into the submarkets of the larger MSA mm -hmm. that you're targeting and then kind of looking block to block. But I mean, you, you know, like that's, that's just, it's common sense. Sure, you know, sure, it doesn't sure. take a PhD or a team of 25 analysts and some big hedge fund to figure this stuff out. Sure, sure, sure. Now you are a veteran in this business uh, lane. So when a deal come, comes across to you, you know, let's, let's assume it's a B class or a C class deal, right? How do you distinguish between the two? Like, like, could you maybe give us insights into some of the, perhaps the tools or the data that you look at and say that, hey, maybe this is not great. Maybe this is better. Could, could you maybe speak to that? I mean, I'm a kind of a numbers guy, so I mean, before I even look at like pictures and stuff like that, you know, run the P&Ls and the rep rolls, put it into the analyzer, kind of run the numbers. Mm -hmm. um, I do that because numbers don't don't lie, sure. pictures do. And then, and then I'll look at the pictures and then do the site visit for the most part. But I mean, that's if it's a B class or C class, I may underwrite it differently and that's it drives the numbers, right? I might use sure. a higher rent increase or I might use a higher comp for the performer rents. So it all kind of depends on, that's how that, whether it's B or C class, it kind of drives that. Very true, very true. Any, any insights into uh, sort of any websites or any uh, specific, uh, you know, softwares or anything that you use or it's mostly data driven? I mean, a lot of people will use like the Reese Report or CoStar, but it's out of the reach of most people. I mean, I sure. think it costs like 10 grand subscription to get it. Sure. Um, but, you know, as a passive investor, I think that is where you're, that's where the buck stops for you. You know, you can verify certain things on the pitch deck, but as far as rental comps, it's going to be really, really hard for you to figure out if it's legit or not. Like to do it right, you're going to have to walk into the apartment posing as it as a possible tenant and seeing what their latest and greatest sheet is. I mean, this is what property managers do. They constantly call up the competition posing as a tenant to get the current um, that apartments run on dynamic pricing. That's why sure, sure. it's not always 875. It moves right. up and down based on availability and occupancy. So it always kind of is changing, but that's, you know, you're going to have to go walk to another building. Hopefully it's close by 
and get the feel and the vibe for not only the exterior, but the interior, right? And this is where it's out of reach of passive investors aren't going to do that. It's not practical. Sure, sure, sure. Makes complete sense. So uh, any parting thoughts as far as, you know, how best uh, uh, investors can protect themselves, like, for example, passive investors can safeguard themselves from, uh, you know, any of the bad investments or perhaps what could be one of your, some of your top advice for passive investors to look into deals and uh, sort of, you know, uh, protect their capital. Uh, do you have any tips around that? I mean, as far as legally, I mean, yeah, I mean, definitely want to have like an entity that you're possibly going through if your net worth is pretty high. But I mean, that's the beauty of investing as a passive investor. That's why I like it. I mean, you're a limited partner. You're not a managing member making calls. And especially if you stick to deals that would have non-recourse debt, you're mitigating your risks right then and there. Sure. Um, but I, th I think the biggest risk is with the people, right? And, investing with the wrong group um, that just goes AWOL or, or gives up or doesn't perform or runs away for money. I think that's the biggest thing that you got to be careful for. And I think you mitigate that with a peer group. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Lane. Uh, share with the listeners how they can find you and learn more about uh, you. Yeah. So they can go to uh, simplepassivecashflow.com. I initially started the podcast back in 2016 when I was investing in turnkey rentals. But as I became more of an accredited investor, I kind of changed my uh, pitch to uh, multifamily investing is what kind of like my bread and butter that I like to invest in. So um, come and follow my journey. And uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Lane, for uh, viewers and listeners. That's Lane Kawalka from Simple Passive Cashflow. Uh, he is a uh, wealth of knowledge and I always appreciate his advice. So thank you for coming on, uh, Lane. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to having you on a future podcast as well. So thank you for coming on. Cool. Thanks, Sakar. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.